All right, Acts chapter 2, we are going to uh, continue, and, and Lord willing, we're going to conclude our, our uh, study in Acts chapter 2, conclude chapter 2 at least, as we look at what might be described, what we could describe uh, or called, what might be called the description, a description of the first church. And this is found in chapters uh, chapter two, verse forty-two through down through verse number forty-seven. So once you found your place, let's uh, I'll read it and then we will pray together. Verse forty-two says, "And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs." were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. All right, let's pray together. Lord, as we come now to look at your word and as we try to uh, really dive into what the text says, what your word says, we look to you for grace, for help, for instruction, not just for knowledge that we may know more about what the scripture says, but especially for how we may apply these things, examine our hearts and see uh, where we fit in this example you've given to us, this wonderful example. So, Lord, would you please uh, give me the grace to help your people? Would you give the grace to your people to receive your word, including me, uh, in, uh, with meekness, with fear, and with joy? Lord, help us and meet with us tonight, we ask. And we pray, Lord, that uh, we would go away and, and see where, where our church can mimic this pattern and really look to you for the, for the help we need to help our church have this uh, a revived spirit. And uh, so, Lord, we look to you. We ask you for your grace and help in Jesus' name. Amen. And so what we have here is we have, as I said, a description of the first church. This is really, we've had Pentecost, and then after Pentecost, uh, Peter preached on Pentecost, and then, uh, and then in verse number 41, there, uh, the Bible says, they that gladly received his word, Peter's word, were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So now we have about 3,120 people, and all of this is done without any church building at all. No nice building like we have, no building to speak of at all, and yet... The church, we might call it, the, in the, when you read the books, the, old, the older books where commentaries and writers and such, they call it the primitive church. But that's not meant in a bad way. It's just the way the church was when it first started. And in verse number 42, and I, I want to point out something in verse 42 that I hope to come back to in a minute. But it, the Bible says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And verse 46 says, and they continuing daily. There's an important point to be made about continuing. So we know that in verse 41, 
verse like 39, 40, 41 is when all of these people trusted in Christ. They're brand new Christians. They're just learning what it means to be a believer. Now, of course, these people weren't heathen. And by that, I mean they weren't Gentile Christians that came from paganism or idolatrous religion. These were people who were Jews. They were, they were already familiar with the Scripture and all of those things. But here, as far as the Christian part of it, uh, this is all brand new information. This is all a brand new life to them. But what, do you, what we do see here is that they get saved in verse 41. And what we note is that they do not merely, when it, the Bible says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Well, let's cover that first. I don't want to get ahead because if I do that, then what I want to say won't make any sense. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Now, of course, the apostles were the people that followed Christ, what were called disciples. And what these people are learning, the doctrine is what the apostles taught. It's very simple. So Jesus taught the apostles. The apostles are now teaching the people. And so what they're, they're basically coming up on the Scripture. That's, it. That's the point. They are meeting together studying the Bible. That's what, that's what the apostles' doctrine is. The apostles' doctrine was not something they invented. They got it from, the at that time, the Old Testament Scripture because the New Testament hasn't been written. They got it from the Old Testament Scripture, which they taught, and they all the things the Lord Jesus Christ had taught them, they are now teaching to these new believers. They're the ones the Lord had appointed to do that. And so they're just passing that information on. Now, here's, here's why that's, that relates to us. This is, this is what the first church grew up on, what the first church started with. It started with the Bible. That's what this is. Now, why is that important? Because what we have in the Bible is the apostles' doctrine. What are you talking about? Who wrote the book of Acts? Who wrote the book of Matthew? Who wrote the book of Mark, the book of John? Who wrote the book of James? Now, all of those were not apostles, but they were all related to the apostles. If not, they, if like Luke was not an apostle, but Luke was related to Paul who was. Peter was an apostle. Mark wasn't, but he was related to the apostles. You have John, you have Matthew, you have James. You have these different writers in, in the scripture and what they wrote in what they wrote in the scripture, what we call now, we call it the New Testament, is the same thing as they were teaching as doctrine in the first church. This is directly related to us. Because when we study the Bible together, we are following the pattern of the early church. When they studied the apostles' doctrine, they were studying the scripture. The only difference is it had not yet been committed to writing like we have it now in this form, but it's the same truth. It's the same truth. Built upon the foundation of the Old Testament, the apostles taught the church. They continued, I'm going to repeat this several times, the church, the first church, continued steadfastly in the learning of the Scripture. Learning of the, Hey, listen. At church, we do a lot of things. We do fellowship. We sing songs. People do special music. We eat together. You're going to see that in just a minute, which I'm glad this is in, this is in the text too. 
The church does a lot of different things. We serve, but the core ministry of the church as far as as far as what we do internally. Now, we've already talked about the Great Commission, and that's what we do externally, right? Going out and telling people about the Lord. That's what we're supposed to be doing, right? That's what VBS was about, except we brought the kids here, but that's the same idea. Well, what we're doing, what we do internally should center around the Scripture. That should be the real focal point. That's my prayer as I started to, as I began a kind of a new ministry, something was different than what I'd done before as a missionary, now trying to pastor a church, Lord, give me what your people need from the Scripture. Not to just have a sermon, but to instruct them, help them to have the, help them to have the Scripture that will help them to grow. That's my desire for you. That's what I pray for you. The Lord would allow me to do for you. But listen, our services... You say, oh man, sometimes the pastor, he preaches a long time. That's true. But our services revolve around the Word of God. Not around a, not around a concert or, or a, a presentation. Or, it's, about, it's, not, it's not about me. It's about you learning the Word of God. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. And you know what? That's as much the preacher's job as it is the listener's job. Because the listener must come. This, what verse 42 describes, is not what the apostles are doing, but what the church is doing. The church is continuing steadfast. Well, that means, at least in part, it is the responsibility of all of us that come to church. Remember, it wasn't too long ago that I was where you are, right? And before I went to the mission field, I was listening to the Word of God as a listener. And I still try to do that. Even as I speak it, I try to listen to it. But the point being is I have to prepare my heart to listen. That's part of continuing in the Apostles' Doctrine, preparing your heart to receive the Word of God. But then they also uh, continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine and fellowship. Fellowship. All this means is commonness. This can cover a lot of different things. This is not an event where you get together. We call it a fellowship, like the fall fellowship. It's not referring to something that specific. It's just the, all the things we have in common. We have a common God, a common Savior, a common Scripture, a common Spirit. And you know what? When we have things in common, we do things in common. We call each other brother and sister. Why? It's not just a thing we do. We do it because we have, we have a common father. This is what it means to fellowship. These people continued in this fellowship. They spent time together. They shared things together. And we'll see a few of these things that they shared together. That's the idea of fellowship is they're sharing time, experience. They're sharing the word. They're sharing the Holy Spirit. They're sharing the Lord's Supper. They're sharing meals. They're sharing joys. They're sharing griefs. They're sharing. That's what it means to be in fellowship. It says also, and in breaking of bread. If you go down to verse 46, once again, it says, and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat that's their food, right? With gladness and singleness of heart. Eating meetings are biblical. 
the first church. You say, well, that's just something we do for fun. Oh, no, it's not. No, it's not. This is a biblical concept. When we have a potluck and we bring food, and I'm not trying to spiritualize something that's silly. I'm really not trying to do that. But this is what they were doing. They were spending time together. And you know what? If you think about it, if, if, if our church, if people in our church spend time together more than about three hours, you got to eat because it's, it's mealtime. That's, that's an important and precious way to spend time together, to fellowship. And that's the example we got here. Now, I'm going to show you something in just a minute that is important. Notice the last thing. In prayers. This is another thing they shared together. You know, when we come down here, we come to church, I, I really hope that when we have Wednesday night service, we take prayer requests. I really hope you write them down. I really hope you write them down. Or if you don't write them down, at least you commit them to memory. And then when, when we, we call on a person to pray, listen, we talked about it on Sunday. This is not just a form that we follow. This is not a liturgy that comes out of some, some missal or some, some book where, where all, every, every service of the year is, is, uh, is laid out for us a way to do things. No, there's a reason we call someone up here to pray. The idea is a person is leading in prayer and our hearts are united to join in prayer. As they're praying, we're praying. Listen, if, if you or if I are sitting there while people are praying for our prayer requests and we're just thinking about what we're going to eat or we're going to think about when we're going to get home or we're thinking about anything except this and we're not engaging in prayer, that's not right. It's not right. You're detached. You're detached. Here's the thing. One of the reasons people have such a hard time with things like corporate prayer like this is because they're not engaged. That's one reason people have a trouble with long church services, which we, this church, does not have long church services. Okay, Our church does not have long church services. I mean, compared to others, we don't. And that's just... We're not trying to do one or the other. It's just the way it falls out. We're not, listen, it's not, we're not complicated. But one of the reasons we have such a hard time with the song service and it becomes drudgery or the church service or the prayer meeting is because we are not plugged in. Our heart is not plugged in. These people were plugged in. That's the difference. And you're going to see more of the difference in just a minute. But they were, they were united and they were sharing in prayer. And that's important for us to do sometimes. You know, from time to time, we get missionary uh, prayer requests. It would be good if we came down here and we prayed at the altar, kneeled on our knees and prayed for these missionaries as they have needs. I want to tell you something. As a missionary, I'm, I'm getting off on a rabbit trail, but y'all just hang with me, okay? As a missionary, we were on the mission field and one of the greatest blessings I got, I ever got, was from a church that supported us. I received a card in the mail. Allison remembers this, I'm sure, once I explain it. I received a card in the mail, and the card was, was written by the pastor, and the card said, we wanted to, our, our church wanted to let you know. Now, this is in the mail, so this is like three weeks after the fact, <laughs> because it took so long to get there. The card said, we wanted to let you know that on this date, 
at this time in our service, we spent, I think it was like 20 or 30 minutes, our church spent 20 or 30 minutes praying for your family. Now, that might seem like a, I did, listen, I did not take that card and just say, oh, that's great, great. No, that, that hit me. They stopped everything they were doing and they engaged, united with one heart to pray just for us. I mean, you know, I mean, you, know you guys know you're tired, you come from work, what, whatnot, and you know, you're, you know, I know the feeling. Sometimes you're like, well, it's, ah, this is a real things to do. And I know you think that because I thought it. So when I heard that, I, I, when I read that card, I thought, man, they took all that time to just to pray for our one family and then let us know that. I'm telling you, it meant a lot to me. It meant a lot to me that there were people praying for us. But look, you can't do that. You can't help in prayer like that unless you're willing to commit to it, plug into it. Verse 43 says, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common. And sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Some people have tried to, have tried to argue that this is a reference to communism, that the church had communism. Here's a couple of differences between this and communism. When these people sold their possessions and parted them to all men, they did so voluntarily. It was not seized by the government. And number two, they still own private property. In fact, I read, uh, just, as, just for kicks, I, read, uh, I, I looked up a quote by Karl Marx. He said this, The theory of the communists may be summed up in, this, in the single sentence, abolition of private property. That's not what's going on here. These people voluntarily, because of the state of what's happening, and, and you know what? This is the only time, this, this church in Jerusalem, it's also mentioned in Acts 4, but this, this is the only time that this kind of communal living is mentioned in Acts. It seems that this was temporary, and it might even been connected with the fact that the Lord told them that the destruction of Jerusalem was going to happen, especially in the book of Luke. Maybe they were thinking that, maybe not. I think probably it was more, it was more in line with the, the, the state of the church, how it was in, in a revival. And then, so, what we also see here is this. They sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. There's a biblical principle here, which is, not that we ought to seize everybody's property. Again, this was volunteer, voluntary, but there was a need. There were needs. There were people in the church who were not able to work. That's a biblical principle. That whoso has the ability to work and to provide for himself must do so. And if, if the person refuses to do so, then he is not deserving of help. But there are people who are deserving of help because they are not in body able to provide for themselves or misfortune happens to them. And our primary focus, number one, should be those within the body. That's what's going on here, right? The people in the body have needs. 
There are people who God has blessed in this body and they voluntarily sell those things to help support those people as they have need. Now, that doesn't mean they gave them a check every month, but the needs were examined, the necessities were verified, and then the church helped. That's the way way this worked. So that those that were blessed, there was a, there was a kind of equality. Now, every, every, this was not everybody brought to the same standard of living. No, that's not what this is. This is supplying needs. Does anybody know the biblical standard for a need? Does anybody know? There's a biblical standard for a need. Nobody? What you might define as poor. What is a poor person? We think of as a poor person as a person who maybe doesn't have a car or makes less than whatever the poverty line is. No, the biblical standard, what is it? Do you know what it is? That's exactly what it is. Having food and raiment, let us be there with content. Food and clothes. Well, hey, I think we're all doing well because all of us have food and clothing. That's a, very, that's a pretty low standard. So when we're talking about needs, we're talking about people who are truly destitute. Truly destitute. Sometimes people think the church is for other purposes, and that's, that's not what it's about. So the principle is this, Galatians 6.10, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. You see that? The priority is those within the body. And as we have opportunity, those without the body. But there has to be, there should be a true and genuine need. Who was it? Ari? No, No, it was the missionary. That's right. The missionary was driving the church van because they flew in, of course, uh, Brother Rackley. And he said that he he stopped at Quick Trip and somebody came up to him and said, Hey, I saw your church van. I was wondering if you could buy my car a starter. It's random. It's not that helping the guy would be wrong, but I guess, I guess the biggest thing is the expectation that we're supposed to help. If you, help, if you want to help him get a starter, you can help him get a starter. But it's the expectation that that's what the church is really there for, is to help, help a guy get a starter. And he's just, you know, unashamedly said, hey, this is what we're going to do. Again, it's not about whether you help him or not, but there is a biblical way. But that's what they're doing. They're supplying needs. They're supplying needs. Let's keep reading here. Verse 46 says, And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. You see, there was no church. Again, Brother Stewart has said it. I I say it. This is not the church. This is a building where we meet. You know what? In the 1700s, our forefathers didn't call this a church. They had other words they used, used sometimes church house, sometimes meeting house. There was, all, there was other kind of words they used to differentiate between the church and the building. And I'm thankful for the building. But they, this church, there was no, there was no building that we, we would call. There was no, like we would think of as a church. They were meeting in the temple, yet there was a church. They were meeting from house to house. Yet there was a church because the church is the people. You see, these, these Christians met, they met daily 
and they met in the Jewish temple. They were among people who were not necessarily friendly to their message and to their beliefs. In the Jewish temple, we thought in the temple. Remember, the temple was not just a building. The temple was a huge complex. And so there were, there were what do they call those? Brother Mark might, might know the, the area around it, the, the covered area around the temple. I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, yeah, but, but on the edges of the courtyard, I can't remember, colonnade or, I can't remember that. There's a word for it. But anyway, they could meet in those shady areas around the temple, and it was big. Well, that's where they met. No church building, but yet there was a church. We need to remember that. You know, coming up here soon, I was talking to Sister Karen, we're going to have to replace the carpet. You know what? It's just a building. It's just a building. This is, you're the church. The health of you guys is way more important than the carpet. In fact, the whole reason we're, changing, we're, we're going to change the carpet is because that might be a, somebody might have a problem if somebody trips over something. But listen, we should get our focus off of the building, the physical things like that, and our focus on the spiritual things because that's what's happening. They didn't even have all that stuff. They couldn't focus on it. And maybe it would have been beneficial, maybe not, but the, the prototype of the church there was no building at all. So we can't say that's essential. It's not. What you have to have is God. You have to have his word. You have to have his people. And you have a church. Now, verse number 42 again, because it relates to verse 46. Notice, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Verse 46, and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple. Let me explain something to you. These new believers, the Bible says they continued. So they believed in Christ and they, of course, were baptized. Believers' baptism, we studied that on Sunday. Now they're continuing. Here's what you don't see here. You do not see them merely continuing to believe in Jesus. And you do not see them continuing to go to church. This is terminology we use. We think, hey, if someone, if someone gets saved and baptized and they, they continue to believe in Jesus and they continue to go to church, that's, that, that is often, this is what people think, often that's the sum total of what it means to be a faithful Christian. And that's not right. That's not right. You can't boil this thing down. What you do not find in verses 42 to 47 is, well, people, they still believe in Jesus and they still appeared in church on Sunday. That is not what you have here. This is not a mere adherence to a profession of faith or just attendance at religious services. I hope that's not the sum total of our faith. Their faith, listen, their faith continued steadfastly right? And they continuing daily. Here's the thing. Their faith was their life. Listen now. Their faith was their life. This means they continue to grow, to increase. They continue to follow the Lord. They continue to learn to be his disciple every day. The word daily is in verse 46. They continued steadfastly. They continued daily. This faith that they had in Christ 
was a daily faith. It was an hourly faith. It was not a Sunday morning appearance faith. It was an every day when I wake up faith. It was a when I go eat my, my lunch faith. When I go to eat dinner faith. It was what I do when I go to bed faith. It was what I do in the, in the daylight, what I do in the dark faith. This is something they did all the time. This was their life. And listen, none of us should have a divided life where we have part of our life, maybe our work life, that's not, not spiritual. And then we have our, our church life and church face and church clothes we put on when we come to church on Sunday. We should not. We must have a faith that is an everyday, all day, all the time faith. And we ought to be the same person everywhere we go. If you're at work, if you're at school, if you're at home, if you're at church, it all be, I get so sick. This is just me, me ranting now. I get so sick of being, oh, don't say that in church. No, don't say it ever. If it's wrong to say it in this building, this is just a building. If it's wrong to say it in this building, you are the temple of God. If it's wrong to say it in this building, it's wrong to say it outside the building, in your house, at work. Because you are the church. Their faith was their life every day. When the Bible says they continued steadfastly, it wasn't like, oh, they kept going to church. No. They stuck to the Lord. They grew. They increased. They were faithful to God. Their faith grew. Listen, this kind of Sunday morning, passive, casual Christianity is foreign. It's foreign to the Bible. It's not there. It's not there. And you know what? All of us have room to grow in this. All of us have room to grow where we, our faith becomes ever, not our faith, but our relationship to God. Is, becomes an ever more important and significant part of our life to where we're filled with the Spirit. This is what the Bible says, right? Ephesians 5. It should be, our faith should be our life. It should be in, integrated into all, every day, every moment, every hour, all the time. That's what it means to continue steadfastly, you see. Then in verse 47, as we get ready to finish here, notice this. This is good. Have Praising God. Notice that they continued daily in one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. That means they went to each other's houses. That's okay. You ought to do that. You know, there's, there's something really good, kind of a, a byproduct of allowing other people in the church to see your house and to come into your house. Well, my house is dirty. That's fine. Take a little bit, clean it up, you know, sweep the floor, put the clothes in the closet and shut it tightly. Whatever. There's something important about other people in other believers in Christ seeing your house. You know why? Because that is your personal space. They can see what kind of movies you've got, what kind of music you listen to. What's important is what's in your house. There's something about that. I'm, te- I'm telling you, there's something about it. This idea where we don't want anybody near us, we want to keep everybody at arm's length in the church. That's not what's happening here. They were saying, come over to my house. We'll pray over here every day. That's what they were doing because they were all in. They were, they were steadfastly continuing. 
steadfastly continuing. But notice in verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. You know who those people are? Those are all the unbelievers around them. This is not talking about favor with the church. This is favor with everyone else. This refers to the Jews around them who are not believers in Christ. Now listen, please. The only way to have favor with unbelievers is by the evidence of the grace of God in your life. What that means is your life has obviously and clearly been impacted by the gospel and they can see it. That's what these unbelievers were seeing. They were seeing a bunch of brand new Christians whose lives were obviously powerfully impacted by the gospel. It changed them. They were different. And they saw it. Those unbelievers, they see in you all, listen now, all the virtues that they themselves hold in high esteem, even though they don't keep those same virtues. And for you, you know that what that, that the virtues that they see, you know that you have nothing to do with that. That is all, we look at ourselves and we're like, whatever good is in me is all due to God's grace and work in my life. That is it, period, full stop. But they see the virtues in us and they think, man, that's awesome. Now, they themselves don't hold to that, but they know it's good and right for the most part. Now, they don't believe in Christ like you do and I do, but they can't deny that what is in you is real because they see it. That's what's happening. There's real Christianity going on here. And the result is those around them are seeing it and hearing it. And they're like, I don't believe like these people, but I like them. They're affected by it. But this, the, the story's not over there. But let me give you the contrast to that. But if, on the other hand, these, all the people that in the verse 47, if they see a hypocrite, If they see a person that has no evidence of the grace and power of God in their daily life. In other words, the gospel is not, is not evident, evidently impacting our lives. It's not an effect. If they don't see that, they know what we profess. If they don't see a, a, a congruent and a consistent and matching impact with that profession that go together, they see a hypocrite. And that is a cause for them to show contempt toward us and toward the gospel. You know what? They will not be saved. In all likelihood, those people will not be influenced by the gospel because our example has, has short-circuited that process. But what I want you to see in verse 47 is as a result of this first church, this prototype, this, 
exemplary church that we look at and we're like, man, our church should need needs these things. I agree. We, 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 need to, we need to work toward this, right? This is a good example to us all. It is the first church in the scripture, right? It's the first one. How they affected those on the outside. God's doing a work on the inside, but it's not staying there. It's affecting those around them. It's reverberating and rippling all around them. but it, it went a one step further. Not only did these, these all the people in verse 47 have favor with them, show them favor, and they liked them. That's, an, that's kind of a, in, in modern parlance, we would say, well, they, they really liked them. And I've met people like that. I met people that didn't believe like I believe, but they liked me, and I had no idea why. I couldn't explain it. A lot of times it had to do with these, these five people, less one, Joshua's missing. no. Who's missing? Josh. There's one other missing. Mary Lynn. She's in the nursery. It was because of them. Because they saw my family and they saw the, the virtue of my family and they liked me. And really, I mean, I don't have anything to glory or gloat about with that. But, that, but that's what they saw. And so they, they see that virtue in you. They see you being honest and upright and your mouth is clean and your life is upright and you're sincere and you're honest and you're straightforward. Whatever that virtue that they see, they see it, and that virtue draws them to you. They like you. That's having favor. If I'm going to do business, I'm going to do business with Eric because I know he's going to shoot. He's going to shoot straight. And he's going to do the best he can when he's selling me granite countertops. Right? With Lester, I know that Lester is going to jab me in the right arm. <laughs> Or whatever, whatever the case might be. They're drawn to that. It affects them. But it's not just about people being nice to us. They don't believe us. It's this. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. That's what it's about. It affects them. Yes, they show favor. Yes, they see that virtue. They see the impact of the gospel. But it also leads them to eventually trust in the Christ that we believe in. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. There are always people that are going to like you at a distance. Yeah, I like you, but I'm not into the Jesus thing. That's okay. Don't be mean to those people. Don't be mean to those people. Because eventually God's going to ring their number. God's going to ring their number. Those, those people, now, now we started with 120. Now there were the 3,000, and they're continuing steadfastly, but now that's reverberating. That's echoing into, into those outside. And then now we have outside of the 3,120, we have other people adding to the church, being added to the church. They're getting saved, but they're not just getting saved and then just disappearing into thin air. No, they're getting saved and they're being added to the church. That's the right way. Get saved, trust in Christ, be put into the church, added to the church, and then you continue steadfastly. There are no stragglers, no loners, everybody getting plugged in. Now, finally, as I was reading this, you know, this is, a, this, this is an exemplary church. That is, it's a church that sets... Sets the tone. Now, some people say in, the, in this case, 
you know, they want to try to look at what the church is doing and by rules and regulations enforce this upon some, uh, some church in 2023. That doesn't work. This was a byproduct. This is the fruit of what God was doing. This is just spontaneous. This is not God. This is not God saying, now you need to have rules for this and you can't have private property and you have to meet for prayer every day at a certain time or else. It's not that. This is all voluntary and spontaneous. This is God, what God is doing. But it's an example to us. And one example it sets for us is an example of revival. How do you know when your church is alive? How do you know when, when you as an individual believer, and then, because the church is nothing but individual believers put together. How do you know when your church is alive and when your own personal, uh, your own personal walk with God is alive? Let's look at it. Because this, what this shows us is the true effects of revival. I have nine of these. I'm not, I'm not going to talk about them. I'm going to just read them. All right? Effects of a true revival, as we see here. Number one. And I got these from the text, okay? This is not Adam's ideas here. Number one, there is excitement about hearing and learning God's word. Apostles' doctrine. Number two, there is strong fellowship among believers. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread. That's fellowship. Three, there is godly fear among God's people. Godly fear is a good thing. It keeps you away from sin. Number four, there is unity and commonness. So unity is a, is a, is a fruit of a, of, the, of a spiritual, good spiritual climate. Yeah, it is. It is. That's what's happening here. They're selling their stuff and giving it away to other people that have need. That's, that's putting your money where your mouth is in unity. Number five, generosity among God's people and a light hold, I might say loose hold on worldly goods. How many revivals have you, you got, some of you people that have been in revivals and seen revivals, almost inevitably, almost inevitably, people start to give stuff away. It always happens like that. When I got saved, that revival that happened after I got saved here, here at the church, I mean, people were bringing stuff in and giving up stuff. and all, I mean, you just, you just had no idea how God was working in their heart. People realized they were holding too tight on worldly goods. That's a result of a revival, according to the Scripture. Number six, effects of a true revival. Please listen. Daily, I say daily religion. By religion in the good sense. It changes the way we live every day. Changes the way we live every day. You see, if a revival, they have hooping and hollering and they have a praise team and concert and they have big, you know, they have famous people that come in and they sing, you got to pay them, you know, six, seven, eight thousand dollars so they can come in and sing. You can have, that's not revival. Revival has nothing to do with how much you shout, has nothing to do with any of that. This is it. All the rest can be put on. This is the real deal. Number seven, and this really gets down to the core of it. Effects of a true revival. Joy in the believers' hearts. They ate with gladness and singleness of heart. Number eight, praise on the believer's lips. 
And number nine, a true revival will have an effect upon unbelievers, which is what we see here. You see, you don't, again, a revival is not the same as a meeting. Now, you hope when you have a meeting, you have revival. But you can just have a meeting, everybody comes and sits like a bump in a log, wait until the service is over, can't wait, and they're out. But revival will have an effect. God will do things, and this is the result. This is how you can see the, tr- the real deal. Get through the hoopla and the smoke and mirrors and all that other stuff, and you can get down to what the real revival is. And this is it right here. You know, I hope, it, I hope the Lord does that here. Not about how many people are here. Of course, we all want to see this place full. That's, that's not the point, though. It's not the point. It's not the goal. The goal is to do what God wants our church to do and to see God do what he did there here to greater or lesser degree according to whatever the Lord wants to do. Let's pray.